Last week, I don't know what I said. I, I, I went back and listened, but I didn't hear. I made some derogatory remark about cats. Did I? And then every cat lover in the church decided to go on my Facebook wall and just harass me all week long. And then finally, I found this post on my wall the other day, and I was kind of excited. I thought, oh, it's a dog. It's a dog. And then I wasn't so excited. So it's some video. I know my wife is like, what's wrong with you? Why do you think that's funny? But I thought it was kind of funny. It's just some guy talking to his dog. I, I like it. Food. You know, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. So... Yeah. So, you know, I, I went to the fridge and I opened up the meat drawer. You know what the meat drawer is, right? Yes. What was in there? Well, I'll tell you what was in there. You know that bacon that's like maple? It's got maple flavor. The maple kind, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. I took that out and I thought, yeah. I know who would like that. Me. So I ate it. Oh, no. You kidding me. Nope. Not kidding. You know, I also noticed there was some beef in there. Yeah, you know, steak, you know, juicy. Well, I ate that, too. <laughs> but I went back to the fridge just a few minutes ago, and I put something together really special. You're going to love this one. I took some chicken. Yeah. I put some, yeah, I yeah. put some cheese on it. Then I covered it with... Covered it with what? I covered it with cat treats. Yeah. Then guess what? What? I gave it to the cat. Gave it to the cat. Ugh. Anyways, hey, so uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, it has nothing to do with the message at all. So we, a couple weeks ago, we uh, kind of began to introduce ourselves to the book of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open there today uh, or on your phones or whatever you're using for a Bible these days. And uh, we're going to dig in today. So we started a couple weeks ago and we looked at the author of the, the letter of 1 John, who was John the disciple, a guy who was an eyewitness to Jesus, heard him, saw him, touched him. And then last weekend we looked at the theme of the book, which is Jesus. And we'll talk next week about what it means for Jesus to be light. But we looked at that. We talked last week, uh, six reasons why we as a church worship Jesus as God. And today we're going to kind of dive into the text. And I, I don't want to say that I deceived you. I just wasn't going to tell you those first two weeks that we were actually only introducing the book because I was afraid you might do the math and think if it took two weeks to introduce a book, how long is it going to take to get through the book? And I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But anyways, we're going to uh, dive into the first four verses. So let's start by, I just want to read those for, uh, for you and then we'll get into it. In 1 John 1, 1, John writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. Four verses that are packed with um, a lot. And when we look at those, it would, it would be easy, for instance, and I was tempted uh, at first to think, well, this passage could be two or three or four. I thought it could be five sermons, actually. Um, 
but we're going we're gonna to attack it a little bit differently today. We're going to look at it as a unit because it was written as a unit. Th- this is a paragraph that we're going to cover today, and it was written kind of as a single stream of thought. In fact, um, John Piper, uh, a pastor, teacher, um, suggests that we might approach this passage like someone who decides to kind of uh, hike along a river. And we're going to start at the source of this river or this stream of thought, and we're going to follow it all the way to completion. We're going to see where it goes, where, where it ends up. It's easy sometimes in the Bible to uh, lose the big picture because we get so hungered down in details. And today, hopefully, we'll, we'll strike a good balance. So we're going to start, oddly enough, strangely enough, we're going to start at the beginning. Um, that's our first point. We're going to start at the beginning of the text because the beginning of the text, interestingly enough, John tries to say is the beginning of our, of our story. He's going to start where it all starts. And, and I, um, it made me think when I was in high school, I lived for a summer in Idaho, and um, we lived in this ranching community, and there was a stream, uh, a small river that flowed just, just outside um, the city that we lived in. And one day we decided to take a hike along the river and follow it all the way. We're told it was only about five miles up to its source. And so we began to hike along this river. And as we hiked along, pretty soon it started to go into a canyon and the walls got narrower and narrower until pretty soon there was just a little space on each side of this river to hike. And eventually we got up and we ended up in this box canyon. And, and, and at the end of this canyon was just a big pool of water. It was only probably about the size of maybe a quarter of an acre, this, this beautiful pool of water. And we got up to the edge and, you know, kind of looked in there and it was just this crystal clear water. And it took me a minute just kind of taking in the sight to realize the strange thing. And that was, there was this river, the stream flowing out of it, but you couldn't actually see anything going into it. And so, you know, being a city boy, I kind of, from LA, I kind of looked and thought, where all that water's coming from? And it took me a minute to realize it, it was coming up from underneath. But that's where that river started. And so John wants to take us back to the beginning of this river, this stream of thought that he wants to talk about today. And in verse 1 he says that this, that which was from the beginning... And what he's going to say is that the spring of life itself, of our life, of our history, um, as a race, um, of the universe, but for each of us as individuals, the spring of that life is Jesus. And he says here, um, the beginning. And the beginning that he's talking about is our beginning. We know that because it can't be God's beginning because God has no beginning. God is eternal. God is pre-existent. So what John is just saying is, I think contextually, he's saying that when his story began, God was already there. But scripture kind of makes it clear. We can apply that all over the place because when you came on the scene, when you had your beginning, God was already there. When humanity had its beginning, the Bible says Jesus was already there. In fact, in verse two, he calls Jesus the life. He says the life appeared and we have seen it and we testify to it. He's talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the source of life. In fact, in terms of our river, John would describe it this way. He would say, Jesus is not part of the river. He is that from which the river flows. He is the source of the river. And in, in the gospel of John, which is written by our same author, in chapter one, verse three, he says this. Speaking of Christ, he says, now through him all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. So he's just saying, and we talked about this last week, Jesus is the one who thought all this up, who planned it, who designed it, who created it, who holds it together, and who will ultimately one day complete it. 
Again, in our text, he not only refers to Jesus as the life, but he refers to him as the eternal life. And by eternal life, again, what he means is that Jesus has always existed, that he had no beginning or end. Now, maybe this isn't true for you, but for me, I think one of the, one of the difficult things about the idea of eternality for me is it's not hard for me to think about something that is right now continuing on forever. I don't know why. That's not real hard for me. Here's what's hard for me. To think about something that exists now um, having existed forever. I don't know why, but it's something for me to think that something goes back uh, a 5, 10, 50 years, 1,000 years. To think about something never having a beginning but going back in time eternally I don't know. That's just a weird thing for me, and maybe I'm a small person, but I find that difficult to, to grab onto. But that's what he's saying here, that Jesus is the eternal life. Had no beginning. We had a beginning, but he never had a beginning. And that's how he starts this. And I, I love it because when I, when I read that, and, and it's just me, but I could read verse 1 and verse 2 and go, wow, that's a great, there, there's a whole sermon right there. There's a whole Bible study right there, the eternality of God. But that's not what John does here. In the text, he wants to force us. He's, you know, we're, we're kind of at the beginning of the river, and he says, I know you could stay there for a while and camp out there for a while and enjoy it, but I want, let's, let's move, because I want to take you somewhere. This is going somewhere. And he talks, secondly, about this eternal God who appears. It's pretty big, because he wants to take us somewhere. He says that God appeared. The life appeared. And he says, and we have seen it. And, and he was a witness to it. John says, I could testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has again, has appeared to us. So what he says is the invisible became visible. It's a pretty big thing. That's why John can say in verse 1, uh, I saw it and I heard it and I touched it. I mean, that, when I read that and thought about that this week, I'm like, wow. You know, I mean, I, I would imagine that the first time that John met Jesus it probably didn't strike him necessarily that way, you know, because I, I see kind of John, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, progressing in his understanding of Christ. But the first time he touched Jesus, do you think he touched him and thought, I'm holding eternity. I, I'm looking at the invisible. I'm having a conversation with the eternal. I'm having a conversation with something that goes back and back and back and back. And I'm talking with something that knows the future infinitely. I don't imagine that he knew that. I would think that as he grew to be an old man and, and reflected on that, it probably became a, a bigger and bigger, more awesome thought to him. You know, like I had lunch with, you know, God. I mean, that was probably something as he, as he grew older that began to capture his imagination. So, so I love that because John just is kind of like, hey, yeah, Jesus, eternal God, well, I knew him, you know. We, we, had, we had coffee together, it was cool. And yet, Ever since then, people have read those statements and tripped over them and fallen over them and debated over them and rejected them and denied them. There's a lot of people in history that have gotten super upset about those words. John just writes, hey, you know, the life appeared, a song, we hung out together. And it's it just made a lot of people over the years really upset. And, and we know why, because, you know, again, we find that most people are willing to accept a vague idea of God. Again, studies say that you can go out and ask the average American, do you believe in God? And don't define it, just say in, in, in God. And anywhere from 94 to 98% of Americans will say, sure, yeah, I believe in God. But they don't mean what John meant when they talk about God. Because the incarnation here that we're talking about, 
this is, this is something that's very, very particular. And that's kind of the official term we use, the label we stick on this. We call it the incarnation, where God and man dwell in one body. And this whole concept of the incarnation, this is, this is a very particular kind of doctrine. And that's what John's saying. He's saying that God came as a particular man, that, that he came in a particular time in history, that he came to a, and, and lived in a particular place, and he issued particular teachings, and he called us to repent of very particular sins, and he went to a particular cross, and by the way, he had a very, very particular name, and that name was Jesus Christ. And for a lot of people, they, they're okay with the idea of God, but Jesus is way too particular. And so John comes along and just goes, hey, you know, by the way, I met God, and he has a name, and this is when he lived, and people stumble all over that. Now, as, as Christians, I think, as Christ followers, chances are that we struggle with the incarnation in a different way than most people struggle with the incarnation. So if you've studied your Bible, if you've, if you've read any theological works, been to Bible college or anything, you know what I'm talking about. So people will debate and argue, and there's books and tapes and blogs and all that stuff. How could God have been um, a 100% God and 100% man because the math doesn't work, and one person, I can have 200%. And so again, you know, there's books written about it, and how could he have been perfect God, and all-knowing God, and, and pre-existent God, and an all-powerful God, and unchangeable God, and on all that, and then he could have been man, and have a body like ours, and understand what it's like to be tempted like by us, and all that stuff. How could all that stuff really dwell in one person? And that's a good question, but it's not the question that most people struggle with. See, most people don't struggle with that. I think what most people struggle with when they think of the incarnation is not how do two natures belong in one body, but it's the implication that they have a problem with. That's the thing that most people struggle about. Because if the incarnation is true, then everything that that particular man said was true. And everything about him was perfect. And, and that means that we must submit to the authority of this particular man. Everyone. And, and that's really the stumbling block, I think, of the incarnation. Because the incarnation, this God appearing to us as a man, strips away the idea that somehow we can be our own God or that we can do our own thing. It says, you know what? If Jesus was God, if the incarnation is true, then you can no longer do your own thing. You need to do his thing. You can no longer pose as being self-sufficient or somehow, depending on your own wisdom and your own ability to be good enough someday, to be accepted by God into heaven. Instead, the incarnation says, Jesus must be first in our life. And we must pursue his thing above our thing. And we need to learn to depend on him and li live life according to his wisdom and his teaching and his truth. John Piper says this and I, uh, about the incarnation, and I love this. He says, when God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man, Jesus, becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is, it is authoritarian. It's imperialism. It's despotism. It's absolutism. Who in the world does he think he is? Well, he thinks he's God. And apparently, so does John. See, the doctrine of the incarnation is so crucial that later on in chapter 4, John will make this statement, and it's big. John will just say, when you're talking with another person, and you're talking about spiritual things, and have you ever done that and wondered, are, now, are they being led by the Holy Spirit or some other spirit? John says, here's how you can tell. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God in another person. 
every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the, in the what? In the flesh. That's the incarnation. Okay? It's from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So you think about that. Again, the implication is this. Only the Spirit of God can break the natural rebellious tendency of people to reject the incarnation. That's our natural tendency. Only the Spirit of God can take a heart and turn it 180 degrees and suddenly make it want to embrace and love that which it formerly rejected. The incarnation. So again, as we go through this passage, what I love is, just for me personally, as I was studying this week, I'm like, man, I could just, we could just do a sermon on the eternality of God. And then John pushes us and goes, no, 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 there's an implication. Let's talk about how that played out in history. And again, we could just kind of talk about the incarnation. But again, he kind of pushes us because he's in a single flow of thought here. So he says, let's keep moving. Let's go to verse 3 because we want to talk about fellowship with God. So he wants to move us down the river a little bit and say, but there's more. Let's think about fellowship with God in verse 3. He says, now we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He says, where's all this going? Where's the eternality of God and the appearing of God? Where does it all lead to? He says, it's fellowship with God. In the second uh, part of the verse there, he says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you may be familiar with that word fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. We like to use it. We like to throw it around. Um, Koinonia is kind of a a deep, rich word. Sometimes it means a friendship. Sometimes it refers to a partnership. Um, In the New Testament, sometimes it's a reference to people who have a shared belief or a shared commitment um, to a value or a priority. Koinonia is what makes the difference between someone who's an acquaintance and someone who's like a deep, lifelong friend. It's koinonia. It's the thing, you you have a shared commitment. You have a shared value. Koinonia is the thing that can turn a family unit, you know, just people who live under the same roof and have the same last name. Koinonia is what can turn them into a family united. Uh, Koinonia is the thing that can take a room full of people who get together on a weekend and look at the screen and sing the same songs and go through the same outline. And it can turn that group of scattered people into a family, into a fellowship, into a place of God's love and God's, God's power. That's, that's koinonia. It makes our relationships deeper. We understand the Bible says that we were created to have koinonia with God, but our sin separated us from that koinonia. But Jesus came, and we talk about this a lot, through the cross, through his sacrifice, he once again made koinonia with God possible for you and I. But you need to understand this. Koinonia is not, um, sometimes when we hear that word in the church, we think, well, that means I know God. So if somebody said, hey, do you have koinonia with God? You might be tempted to say, uh, yeah, I know God. I have fellowship with God. We'll come to understand in the book of 1 John that that's not what John's talking about. He would say, oh no, I'm not talking about knowing God. You can know God, but that's not koinonia. Koinonia is when, is when you embrace and commit yourself to, to value what God values. That's koinonia. Koinonia is when you love what God loves. Koinonia is when you delight to spend time with God. Koinonia is when you look for ways to include God in every part of your life. It's like, 
um, when, when Christy, when my wife and I first got married, be- before we were married, uh, we had some parts of our life in common and there were other parts of our life that we did not have in common because that wouldn't be appropriate before we were married. But once we got married, I was looking forward to having koinonia with my wife. I was looking forward to um, every part of my life being shared with her. I was looking forward to the fact that, that at the end of you know, the evening, she wouldn't go home to her house and I would go home to my house, but we would have koinonia. We'd do life together. Our calendar, our schedule would be koinonia. Our finances would be koinonia. Everything about our life would be, would be that, that koinonia. And that's kind of what he's talking about here as he talks about what does it mean to have fellowship with God. On a practical level, what does that mean? What does that look like? It means you're just looking for ways to have that deep fellowship with God. And often that's very different than, than the way we sometimes approach what we might call spiritual disciplines. So for instance, prayer can be uh, a discipline. Prayer can be a box you check off, or prayer can be fellowship. But it isn't always fellowship. What makes prayer fellowship? When it's a deep, genuine conversation between you and God. Because you want to talk with Him. Because you want to do life with Him. Reading your Bible can just be a, you know, well, I'm online to, you know, on track to read the Bible in a year. All right, and I'm sure God will be happy with that. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is when you come to the Bible and you go, man, I just want to hear from God, the God I love. I want to hear what he says. I want to know what he thinks. I want to know what he values. I want to know that because I want to grab onto that. I want to hear from my God that I love. That's koinonia. Koinonia is when you, when you gather together with other believers and you sing to God and you worship God, right? But you're worshiping God. You, as you sing, those words are coming from your heart. They're coming from your head. You're not just singing that song, oh, this is the next song, I don't even like this song, Uh, let's just get through this song. Uh, That's when you really engage in that koinonia with God. Now John understands that fellowship with the Father is the gift that comes through Jesus. In fact, in chapter 2 he says this, no one who denies the Son has the Father, that is the Son is the connection to the Father, and whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. It's that connection with Jesus that allows us to have fellowship with the Father. And so Jesus comes along, and John just remembers how Jesus comes along one day, and he says, hey, John, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Talked about that a few weeks ago. It required an an offer on Jesus' part, but a response from John. John had to set down his nets and make the choice to follow Jesus. And John's just saying, Jesus is still offering us an opportunity to have fellowship with the Father today. But it requires a response of trust on our part. So, as we're going down this river, here's our, here's our flow of thought. He starts with the eternality of God, which is a great thought, but he says, let's keep moving because I want to take us somewhere. And then we think about the incarnation. And then he says, what, what was the incarnation about? Uh, again, a little farther down the stream, because it allows us to have fellowship with God. And that's great, but that's not the whole thought here. He wants to take us to the next, next little spot along the river. And that is that once we have fellowship with the Father, it opens up another opportunity for us in life, and that is to have fellowship with believers. In verse 3, again, notice what he says. Now we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship, John says, with us. And he's, he's speaking on his behalf and those believers. He's probably in Ephesus at the time of those believers. And he says, we're just telling you this because we want you to have an opportunity to have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. So if we read it backward in this passage, what he'd say is this. We have the eternal God who becomes man, and when we connect with God through Jesus, once that happens, then it opens up a door and gives us the opportunity to have fellowship with each other. But notice the way that happens. First, it starts with God. 
And that's why John says, and, and the way that I cultivate fellowship with other people is I preach, I proclaim Jesus Christ. And as hearts grab onto that, that opens up avenues for us to have fellowship with each other. Now, at Gateway, we like to talk about our, we, we have three purposes as a church. Those purposes are to know and to grow. And what's the third one? Yes, yes, thank you. God bless you. Uh, to know, to grow, and to show. So we say it's three things. It's about knowing Christ personally, and then it's about growing together as a family, because that's very important in Scripture. And then it's about us showing people the love of God. And when you look at this passage, you notice there's the connection here between the first and the second. That the way that we have fellowship with each other, John says, is you might be tempted to think the way that we could have greater fellowship is this way. But he says, actually, it's this way. That as we have fellowship with God, it opens up avenues for us to have fellowship with one another. True fellowship among believers begins when we have fellowship with the Father. Now, I need to kind of say something here, and I hope this is clear because I need to open up a door that we're going to explore over the next few weeks as we walk through 1 John. There are, there are certain beliefs that define your faith. So as you're sitting there today, you're probably thinking, well, yes, I have faith in Jesus Christ. But if I was to ask you, could you describe that for me? If you were to write that down on paper, for instance, say, this is, this is what defines my faith. That would be very important because, for instance, sometimes I'll have people say to me, um, oh, I have faith in Jesus. I believe that he was, a, he was a cool guy and he was kind of a revolutionary and he said some really cool things and he might have even been a prophet. But if I say, do you believe that he was God in the flesh? They'll say no. Now, they have some kind of faith. It's just not a faith that saves them. Instead, what does it mean to have saving faith in Christ? And so this, this is where, for instance, we might say on a really superficial level, what kind of faith saves you? And I might say, if you have a faith in the person of Christ, does that make sense? Uh, my faith is in the person of Jesus. Um, sometimes we'll say that. And we'll say, that's the faith that I have. And so somebody might say, okay, you have faith in Jesus. Could you explain that a little bit further? You might kind of go down a level and say, okay, I, I might say, well, okay, I have faith in the, in the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. Does that help a little bit? So I believe that everything that he said was true and is, is, is law and is truth and I need to obey. And I believe that the works that he did um, not only back up the words, but they also make a way for me to have a relationship with God. So see, that's a little bit more defined than just I have faith in the person of Christ. I have it in his work and in his word. And when we start defining our faith, there's a really important word that we would use, and that would be the word doctrine. Doctrine is an important term, and I know some of you are probably ready to take a nap. As soon as you hear the word doctrine, oh, it's time, it's time to take a nap. I say this to you because there's a lot of, it, the word doctrine, the word theology has gotten a really bad rap in the church today. But doctrine is just simply a set of beliefs that describe or define the content of your faith. So, for instance, in the, in, the, in the Christian church, we would have what we might call some orthodox doctrines. That is, some doctrines that we think um, describe truth. And we have, you know, doctrines of God and doctrine of salvation and doctrine of Scripture and doctrine of sin and doctrine of uh, ecclesiology and, and eschatology and all sorts of ologies and, and all sorts of doctrine that we have. And in 1 John, this is important because John is going to take us very, 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 very deep into doctrine. Why is he going to do that? Because John believes that uh, a thriving and healthy Christian fellowship is strengthened 
through a shared doctrine. So John is going to write a letter filled with doctrine to cultivate a stronger fellowship within the church. Now, we're going to get into that doctrine in the weeks to come. But just a couple of kind of red flags that I want to mention before we get into that in the next few weeks. As I, as I look at the church today, as I look at a lot of, um, uh, a lot of books that I'm reading today, uh, Christian books, as I'm looking at what a lot of pastors are teaching, there's a couple of concerns I have about doctrine and shared doctrine in the church. The first one would be this, um, that there, a, a danger in the church today is that we often attempt to create fellowship among believers on the basis of a shared experience rather than on the basis of a shared doctrine. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes when pastors are brainstorming, how can we get our church to have stronger fellowship? How can we get our church to be more united as a church? And that gets difficult, because if there's just 50 people in your church, it's not so tough. But when you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in multiple services, you know, there are times when pastors sit around and go, how can we just get all these people to like each other and, and to care about each other? How can, we, how can we do that? And here's what we usually do. Well, we need a program. Well, we need a shared experience. If we could just have the right music, it would probably draw our church together. You know, that's what would, that would bring our church together, to have just the right music, whatever that would be. Uh, Or if we could just get our pastor to preach the right sermons, because everybody knows a three-point sermon is the way to go. And last week there were six points, and this week there were five points, and that's never going to work. Or if we could just get the sermons now to half an hour, and that's it, we could probably really grow our church, and people would like each other because it wouldn't be too long. And, you know, if we just had the killer kids program or just the right men's program or just the right, if we had a choir or this or that or whatever it is, I don't know, whatever it is. But you see in churches a lot of times now, if we just had the right program, then we'd have the right experience. And if we had the right experience, then we'd just have the, oh, the fellowship. It would be so great. And here's the problem with that. Here's why it never works in the end. Because it's not about God. It's all about us. Here's what I want. Here's what I like. Here's what I... You think about that. When you start going down that road, I mean, let's separate God for a minute, okay? It's 11 o'clock, so I'm just going to keep going. I don't have another service, so... Okay, think about this in your marriage. In your marriage, when you reach the point, you go like, you know what, from now on, it's just all about... It's about me. The things we do are about me, and the vacations we take are about me, and the food we eat is about me. It's not about us anymore. It's about me and me. Usually, where does that head in a marriage, okay? It just never goes anywhere good. Is that how you build a strong marriage? Anyone? When the church becomes, a, when, when we just start to push God aside and say it's about us, it never ends up anywhere good. It never does. And my fear is that increasingly, that's what we think in the church. In fact, that kind of leads to the second red flag. And that is, in the church often today, we attempt to preserve unity in the church. Not by embracing the great doctrines of Scripture, but by avoiding them. And again, we're seeing this in the church. See, when John wanted to build fellowship, he gets very doctrinal, very, very theological. That is the doctrine of God. But today in the church, when we want to build unity, usually we get very non-doctrinal. What does that mean? It means we avoid anything that might be controversial. We avoid anything that might offend someone. So, so for instance, what does that lead to? Well, that means if I'm going to get decidedly untheological, undoctrinal, that means there's some things I can't talk about, like I can't talk about sin, 
you know? So increasingly in the church today, we, if, we, if we talk about sin at all, we talk about sin very vaguely. We wouldn't want to name any sin, right? Because if we named it, that might upset somebody, and that might, or we might have some different views on that, right? So anymore, you know, we, we, we're very careful with what we, 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 oh, he didn't, I had an, you know, a guy will say, oh, I had, an, I had an affair. I had an indiscretion, you know? Instead of saying, well, you committed adultery. And in the church increasingly today, we're just kind of soft-selling sin. What's it, what's it doing in the church? We don't talk about obedience anymore because that's just too demanding. Right? Don't talk about obedience. Just let's talk about grace. Let's talk about judgment. Don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about hell. Hell is really upsetting. <laughs> Imagine that. Why would that be upsetting? Hell sounds very judgmental. <laughs> That'd be right. Uh, let's not talk about the exclusive claims of Christ. That sounds very narrow-minded. I think we already got over that. Yes, it is. Jesus was extremely narrow-minded. Um, let's not talk about stewardship because people find that offensive when you start telling them how to use their money. Let's not talk about evangelism. So here's the thing about evangelism. I'm watching more and more churches do this. Don't try to save your friends and neighbors when... when it, and believe me, this is happening in churches. I'm listening to pastors who are avoiding evangelism because here's kind of where they go. Well, if you go to your neighbor and you share Christ with them and they have another religion, then what you're saying is you're kind of saying your religion isn't good enough and you need Christianity and that's kind of judgmental and all that. Again, like I don't know what the issue is, but you probably shouldn't say that because that'll be offensive. And yes, it is and all of that stuff. Instead, look what John does. John says, we proclaim to you, we proclaim, we announce, we pull out the megaphone, we yell it, what we have seen, what we have heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. John says, you know what? I don't mess around. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna call it like it is. And I think that part of the, 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 the call of this book is that the church has got to, to realize that God has given us the Bible for a reason, you know? It's not just a nice pastime. It's something to study, it's something to apply to our lives. And John wants to bring some of the great doctrines of Scripture to bear in this book. And so John talks about this idea. And, you know, we, we could have just, we could have stopped right there. Said, that, this, the, the sermon has four points. How many more do you need? We, we started with God, and then we went to the incarnation, and then, and then we can have fellowship with God, and now we can have fellowship with each other. But what I love is, that's not where the, the flow of the thought stops. He says, oh, and, you know, one more thing before we finish. John says, I want you to have absolute joy. That's where he ends up. In verse 4, he says this. Now, we're writing this. Why is he writing the book? Why are we going to get all doctrinal, theological? He says, because we want to make our joy complete. What's John saying? John's saying, I think, I think part of what John would say is, when I think about eternal God, I get a lot of joy out of that. I mean, I love that. And when I think about you know, especially for John, when I think about God incarnate, John probably says, man, that gives me tons of joy to think about Jesus that I got to listen to and, and, and touch and have lunch with. And then he, he, he might say, and then when I think about um, the fact that Jesus made it possible for me to have fellowship with God, man, that gives me a lot of joy too. And then he might go on and say, and then it didn't only do that, it meant we get to be a family. And that brings me a lot of joy. But then John makes a statement but I'd like a little more joy. 
So it's kind of a bold statement. He's like, um, you know, what does it take to make John happy? Because he's got a lot of great things. Let me ask you this question. If you were to wake up tomorrow morning and you thought to yourself, I wish I had just a little more joy in my life. How would you pursue that? What would come to your mind? How would you pursue joy? John says, here's how I'll do it. I want more people in this right here. I want more people to have a relationship, fellowship with God, and by extension, fellowship with me. And John says, that's not just a matter of duty, okay? He says, that's a matter of absolute joy. So John says, I have joy. I have lots of joy, but it's not complete. There's more to be had. And so this is what John says. That's why I proclaim Jesus Christ. I proclaim him, he says, to the people around me who don't know him. I proclaim Jesus to the people who don't want to hear it. I proclaim Jesus to the people who persecute me. I proclaim Jesus to the people who throw me in jail. I, I, I claim Jesus to the people who put me in a cage and drop me in boiling oil and you know that whole thing. He's like, why do I do that? Because there's a chance that next week they may come to church and sit next to me. Because they accepted the invitation of God. And John says, man, now that's what brings me joy. And John's desire is that you would be filled with joy too. And I'm sure that for all of us, my hope this morning is that you might sit here and think to yourself, you know what, I do have a lot of joy. I have lots of joy. I hope that you do. But as we think about this passage, here's my, here's my question for you. Who is it in your world right now in your relational world that doesn't know Christ. And if John were here today, and if John knew you, John would say, you want some more joy in your life? Let me tell you how to get joy. Share Christ with that person because there's a chance that they may give their heart to Christ. We talk in our church, we talk about the oikos. Oikos is a Greek word that you find in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that means extended household. So today when when we talk about a household, we usually mean geographically. If I said, who lives in your household? You might say, uh, the people who live under my roof. But back in Jesus' day, if you said, who's in your oikos, is in your household? It was, a, you would think relationally. You would think about people that you had loving, influential relationships with. And again, studies tell us that the average one of us here, the average American has anywhere from 8 to 15 people in our lives who, with whom we have these loving, influential relationships. John would just say to us today, Are there any in there who don't know Jesus? Are there any people in there who don't know Christ? And they need to. And John says this. John says, can you imagine how cool it would be if they gave their life to Christ? If they began fellowship with the Father and then with us? And we decided probably a great way to to end our time together today would be to take communion So the guys are going to come forward right now and and they're going to pass out the bread and the cup.